the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hi Ian, how's it going? Very good Alex, how are you? Yeah, yeah, I can't, can't complain, Think things are good. First of all, thanks for, for agreeing to, to chat with us today um, about renewables. Uh, Ian, for, for those who are listening, can you give a, a kind of brief introduction to yourself and, and what your role is as a consultant? Yeah, so um, my name is Ian Boyd and I'm an environmental consultant in the environment team at SEC Consulting. Um, when I started this job here about six years ago now, it was very much renewable based renewable energy focused and that was pretty much 100 percent of my my job um was working with farmers getting planning permission and designing kind of wind turbines hydro schemes ad plants that sort of thing um over recent years my role has changed a bit into more kind of general environmental consultancy um but still kind of working a lot with um planning applications for for various clients on everything ranging from poultry farms to um working with some big engineering farms on um dueling of motorways and various things like that so it's quite a it's quite a broad range of stuff we cover in the environment team um, but it keeps keeps it interesting and um what's your interpretation of the, the kind of state of play of renewables in scotland at the moment is the outlook positive or, or what's it like yeah so so generally speaking um scotland does pretty good um in terms of its renewables um, and its renewable resource. I think Scotland has about 25% of Europe's offshore wind and, and tidal resource. So considering the size of the country, we've, we've got a really good resource of potential renewable energy um, there. Um, I think 90% of Scotland's electricity consumption currently comes from renewable sources. And there's a target for that to be 100% by the end of this year. So we won't know until next year whether or not we've actually made that target. But it's been increasing uh, about 14% every year. So it looks like we hopefully will make that target. But within the wider frame, there's a target for 50% of the overall energy of Scotland to be from renewables. So it's this 90% at the moment of just electricity, but obviously a lot of our energy demand is heat and things like that as well. Um, so there's a other target that by 2030, 50% of Scotland's energy, overall energy, will be from renewable sources. And then with all the kind of decarbonisation targets, they're hoping that by 2050, it'll be almost entirely decarbonised. Most of our current kind of capacity comes from onshore wind and hydro. Um, they're the two big ones. They're the kind of most established we have in the country. But recently, offshore wind is becoming more prominent, and that's kind of really kind of um, becoming more to the fore and increasing our capacity even further. Um, in terms of agriculture, um, over recent years, we definitely have seen a slight dip in some of the kind of renewables that are being installed on farms um, compared to what was happening, say, 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, but generally speaking, in the country, um, we're doing pretty well and uh, it's increasing year on year our renewable capacity. And is that just a result of the kind of the 
the the natural climate and weather of Scotland, or is there something about the the incentives that Scottish government have set out that that makes Scotland a, a preferable place for renewables? I think it is a, a in the past it's definitely been a bit of both. The, the main thing we always have and can always kind of rely on is that. Scotland is we're known for being pretty wet we're known for being pretty windy as well so all these things that maybe are a bit annoying at times actually make it very good in terms of renewable energy generation and so that's good in that our landscape our geography where we are all kind of aids itself to a lot of renewable technologies the other thing has been these kind of UK-wide support schemes that have been in place so for agriculture, um, one of the main drivers, I would say, was the, f- the feed-in tariff scheme for renewables. Um, and that actually shut to new applicants in April 2019. Um, and that was the driver for a lot of the kind of scale of devices that farmers would look at on their farm. And um, it was guaranteeing some income for farmers as well as the kind of environmental benefits and everything else you might get from it. It was like a guaranteed source of income, which was one of the main drivers that farmers would do it because it was um, a safe bet and a good use of your land for however 20 years or however long the scheme will be running for. Um, But since that stopped, um, there's definitely been a, a decrease in interest or the motivation i'd say for some farmers to install renewables and they may have been looking at other factors instead um so ian here in scotland you mentioned that we're we're very wet we're very windy specifically for the the farmed upland environment do you think there's a preference for wind or water or is is there quite a balance yeah i mean upland environments there's a reason you see hydro schemes up on hills and you see wind turbines on the top of the hills. It's because they're um, they'd lend themselves to those two technologies in in particular. And there's also a reason they're the most established kind of technologies. Hydro's been around for for years. You know, since kind of early 1900s, we've been building big hydro schemes in Scotland. Some of the the biggest in the world at the time were getting built in Scotland. So it's a very well-established technology in these areas. Um, The the benefits for upland environments is that they're exposed areas. So you have your open expanses where you you can get high wind speeds. It's also higher up. The higher up you go, the more wind you're going to get. So they're exposed. They're away from any generally are away from any residential properties and that helps for kind of planning aspects and things you have to consider or any sensitive receptors. They're also um, one of the main things you have to think about for hydro is the available resource you have and also the the head and the fall you have in your schemes, which is how you generate your, your electricity. So um, upland environments tend to be steeper so you can get a, a good head, a good flow of water, a good um, potential for a run of river scheme, for example, which tends to be the kind of scale of um, hydro scheme that a lot of farmers would maybe consider or look at installing. So, yeah, depending on whether it's wind or whether it's water, so whether you're going for wind or hydro will be very site specific and um, you'd have to look at 
all sorts of different factors about whether your energy resource is potentially good enough in these areas or if there's any planning considerations you have to think of and even just stuff like how to design and can you physically build and engineer and um, get the, you have to consider where you can actually build and design and engineer the scheme in that location in the first place so these are all kind of aspects to consider but generally speaking upland environments um yeah they are very supportive and in the past have been great areas for wind and hydro schemes if if um one of the farmers or landowners that were listening to this um were considering looking at renewables for their business where would be their first point of call to, to really get into investigating the, the viability of these options? Yeah, so I think at the moment, the main thing to consider is there aren't the same support schemes and incentive payments to renewables as there used to be. So they're kind of, to make sense economically, the main thing you have to be looking at is, are you offsetting a high demand on your farm? So do you have, are you relying a lot on imported energy electricity are you relying a lot on imported electricity from the national grid and is it costing you a lot of money and if, if so is there actually potential on your site to install renewables and offset that kind of demand you have and that is one of the the main ways at the moment of making these things work economically um you might also just be thinking of doing it from an environmental perspective and trying to reduce your carbon footprint as well. So that's a kind of a, another issue you might want to think about and see the potential benefits. If you are looking for advice on where to go, there is advice on the Farm Advisory Service website. Um, there's also Farming for a Better Climate website, which has lots of examples and case studies of what other farmers and various people are doing as well. So there, there's a few resources out there available that you can go and look at and see what other people have been doing. And there is two potential roads you can go down if you're looking at renewable options. One is to do it yourself. The other option would be to get on board and get an agreement with a large developer or utility who might be looking to rent land or purchase land for a large scheme. Um, I would always get advice when it, whenever you're doing either of those options just to make sure you're not investing too much time and money in something that is not going to benefit you. Uh, in particular, if you're looking to lease land to a developer, um, make sure you get it looked over by a solicitor and make sure you're happy with the all the kind of terms and agreements for the lifetime of the project that includes stuff like access agreements and decommissioning of the scheme as well at the end just make sure you're happy with everything before you sign anything in terms of uh, incentives to, to go into renewables ian my impression was that incentives were better kind of five six seven years ago is that fair or are there still avenues for farmers to go down to to find a relatively attractive um kind of hook into renewables yeah it's it's definitely fair that incentive payments were a lot better um a few years ago the reason for that is the whole point of incentive payments is to try to encourage the technology to develop to encourage people to install it and as the technology and devices mature and get better and better they need to rely less on incentives to make them viable so certain things now if it's a well-designed scheme could in the right location could be viable without incentive payments um but you have to really look at what your needs are and whether a certain renewable technology would 
would meet those needs. Um, like I said, the main driver before really for farmers, in my experience, was the kind of feed-in tariff scheme. The feed-in tariff scheme had, had two parts to it. It had a, a generation tariff and an export tariff. Um, yep. And you were getting a lot of money from this generation tariff for anything you you kind of generated on your site. The export tariff was paying you for anything you exported onto the national grid. Um, now, the government has announced um, a sort of kind of part replacement to feed-in tariff is a thing called smart export guarantee. And that's a guarantee that you will still get paid for the part you're exporting to the grid. But that tends to be a much lower rate than what you're buying the electricity back in now back in for. So that's why actually financially it makes a lot more sense if you can offset that big demand. But if you are looking um, at renewables, I mean, some things like solar PV, for example, the, the cost of solar panels has come down an awful lot in recent years. Um, and if you have demand that kind of matches well with solar generation, for example, if you have fans or a cooling system that comes on in the middle of the day, that's obviously when solar um, generation is at its peak. Um, so a well-designed scheme could actually be good still. Um, so, yeah, although the incentive payments aren't there, if you're offsetting demand or if you've got the right technology and a well-designed scheme, it might still work out for you, um, even without the payments being in place. You touched on on solar there, Ian. I know we mentioned wind and water, um, but is there scope for, for solar uh, in Scotland, so solar power generation, um, or, or are we just too dark and dingy a country for too long in the year? <laughs> yeah, Scotland's not really known for being uh, a lovely sunny place all the time, um, but there is still solar here. Obviously, solar works better um, the further south you are, so we are at a slight disadvantage already, but there is over... 350 megawatts of solar is currently installed in Scotland um, and it can be a viable option um, especially around kind of south and east coastal areas um, if you have a self-facing roof and if the building for example if you're doing a roof money scheme if it's structurally suitable to put solar panels on the roof um, it might work for you and um, like say the price of panels has come down an awful lot and especially roof mounted schemes if you're using vacant space it's not being used for another pur purpose and if you have the right kind of demands and your el electricity profile then it could still be a good option um but yeah we're not the most sunny place but there is plenty of solar panels around and um, you can see them i mean the if you drive around the country, you can see them in various houses, and um, there's a few kind of larger ground-mounted schemes um, along the east coast as well. What uh, what role do you see renewables playing in Scotland's green recovery after COVID? Do you think that um, that it will be something that Scottish government push again? Um, and uh, yeah, can can you just discuss that a little bit? Yeah, so. It has to be something that's, that's pushed. I mean, Scotland has done really well in the last few years in reducing its greenhouse gas emissions and reducing its carbon footprint, especially um, the energy sector. You know, the carbon footprint of the energy sector has decreased an awful lot, and the reason for that is, is renewable energy. Um, and we still have all these targets. There's a, a target in Scotland to be net zero emissions by 2045. Um, and to get there, we're going to need a big effort across all sectors. And 
in my opinion, renewables is a massive part of that. Um, we are seeing a bit of a shift at the moment to to offshore. And um, let me start again. We are seeing a bit of a, a shift at the moment to offshore, uh, especially for offshore wind. The reason for that is offshore, you have these big exposed areas that we talked about before, but you can get much larger turbines out there. And the bigger the turbine, the more electricity you're going to generate. So there is a bit of a shift to offshore schemes compared to onshore, which has currently been the main driver. But there is still plenty of projects in the pipeline and there's still potentially um, a lot of onshore capacity that's not been used yet. Um, so yeah, I think looking forward and uh, the various green targets and environmental targets we have, um, yeah, renewables is still going to be a massive part on helping us um, meet these targets and part of this green recovery. Where where do you stand, Ian, on the issue of turbines in particular um, being eyesores on the landscape? I know that that's a, a contentious problem for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people think that it, it spoils the view. Um, where 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 do you land um, on on that issue? Yeah, it's it's a very divisive issue, and um, people have, have very strong feelings for it. Personally, I, I think they look great. I I don't have a, a problem with them, but I know a lot of people do, and a lot of people don't like it. Um, the the key here is making sure like any scheme is cited in the right place, and that mm. is when you have to consider the various planning aspects. Um, turbines aren't going to be suitable everywhere and they shouldn't be you need to make sure you're you're putting them in the right location and that you can meet the various planning requirements you have and that includes stuff like making sure you're not um spoiling the visual landscape making sure you're mm -hmm. not doing anything that could potentially be in a ecologically damaging area um so there's lots of things you have to kind of look at you can't just think oh, i'll put a turbine up there because it's a top of a hill and it'll be a good spot um you should look at the local development plans for your your council area and see if there's any areas they have marked for being suitable or not suitable for renewable generation um but i mean like you say a lot of people do find them eyesores and it can be a divisive issue so you really have to be smart and careful about where you cite these things and a right scheme in the right place can 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 work great but likewise if it's a really bad design and a bad location you probably won't get planning permission so you could waste a lot of money and time doing that um, and also you might annoy a lot of people at the same at the same time trying to mm. push it through so yeah i think careful sighting careful planning um is really important i think broadly i would agree with your position i um i appreciate that uh that Scotland has a lot of very iconic um, landscapes, a lot of a lot of um, kind of natural heritage that you don't want to to, to compromise with, with something like a a, a renewable uh, wind farm. However, like yourself, I don't see I, I don't find wind turbines in particular to to be um, ugly in any way. Um, I, you know, I, I quite like the uh, the, the sight of them. Um, but I know that there are a lot of people out there that that do look at them and think, "Oh, that's that's not a, you know, I don't I don't want that on my my back door kind of thing." Yeah, exactly. It is funny how the same thing can have very different opinions from people. But um, yeah, in my opinion, I'd much rather see someone wind turbines on top of a hill than uh, a big coal fire power plant 
building out yeah. smoke. So yeah, my preference would always be for the, the wind turbines personally. And you mentioned Ian um, just there the the requirements for e things like ecological surveys um, and not uh, not conflicting with other priorities within the area. Is there is there an issue with uh, with with peat um, and, and peatlands in, in particular? I, I was speaking to to David Eady. He came on and we we discussed um, woodland planting options, um, and obviously deep peat is a big concern for them, particularly for for wind turbines, but but also more broadly, is protecting the natural landscape a, a priority? And and should peat in particular be something that put you off renewables? Yeah, so peat and areas of deep peat in particular need to be avoided. Um, peat is a is a massive carbon store. It's is one mm -hmm. of the biggest kind of carbon stores that we have in in this country. And renewables, you know, they should be green. They should be benefiting our kind of climate change targets and ambitions. Um, and if you start disturbing peatland environments, there's a risk you can do a lot more harm than than good by releasing and a, a lot of that stored carbon that is in the soil. So yeah, definitely avoid kind of areas of deep peat. Um, and that again is part of your whole kind of planning considerations. Um, in terms of um, other kind of ecological factors, I mean, a lot of people are concerned about bird strikes, for example, for, for wind turbines. Um, yep. And it's one of the kind of biggest issues you, you have. Um, and again, it's all about making sure you're citing these turbines or these schemes in the right area. Um, there, there has been some research recently about various things that can get done to help to reduce the number of bird strikes. I think there was an article I read on BBC News last week, which was about um, painting a turbine blade black has has been shown to reduce strikes by something like 70%. So there's a lot of kind of research and stuff that's been done on ways to avoid it but the main thing you need to do is cite these things right so you have to cite them in an uh, area that um is going to be um not damaging to the wider environment um and that also goes for if we're talking about hydro schemes um if you're picking a hydro scheme um although once they're installed especially when a river scheme seem to fit in quite well with the landscape you will have to for example put in access tracks you'll have to um dig up part of the hillside for the penstock pipe and, and various things like that so i again it's all about making sure you're you're thinking about all these factors and doing things in the long run that'll be environmentally beneficial as opposed to negative or or do more harm Mm -hmm. Do you know it's an interesting it's an interesting point. I I, I suppose there are areas um, where um, kind of your climate priorities and your your biodiversity priorities in particular will clash and, and conflict. Um, I know that in in the past two weeks, um, the WWF came out with their most recent update on the state of biodiversity globally, um, and they'd kind of suggested, I think if I, I remember right, it was something like 68% of the world's biodiversity has been lost in the last 50 years, um, and uh, and obviously that's 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 terrible. Um, but I think it's interesting where. Um, you have elements of, of um, climate change um, policy and incentives and, and projects that don't necessarily go well with uh, with, with biodiversity. Um, I, I deal with a lot of clients who um, 
are uh, in, in areas where hen harrier in particular are, uh, are big issues um, and a lot of designated sites in the area. Um, and they would love to put up something like a wind turbine, but, um, but obviously there, there is just this, this push and pull between, between the two, between you know, your biodiversity and, and your climate priorities. Yeah. Um, you mentioned designated sites there, especially if you have a designated site which is known for um, bird or migrating birds. Um, there is large caveats about where you can site a wind turbine because um, you could interfere with their flight pattern and, and various things like that. Um, but it might mean that maybe a wind turbine is, is not the most suitable technology in that area. There might be other options for you. Um, you might be able to put in a hydro scheme if you have the right kind of river um, environment. But I, again, if we're looking at river, you have to think about stuff like um, barriers to fish, for example. You have to make sure you're not actually damaging the environment for fish or salmon in particular. Um, bryophytes, which are a type of moss, are actually one of the biggest things you have to kind of think about on the West Coast, especially because there's some sites in the West Coast of Scotland where these mosses and lichens are only found there and not found anywhere else in the world. Um, and if you have them in your river, then you're not going to be able to put in a hydro scheme because you could potentially damage that species. So um, all these things are really important things to consider alongside your other planning considerations, whether it's your impact on your neighbours and nearby properties, your visual impact, your ecological impact, um, and just the general design of the site and what's going to be the best location, the best scheme for you um, are things to consider alongside the financial aspects of it. It's not a, a simple, straightforward process to put up a renewable scheme. But if you think about all these factors and actually figure out, oh, actually, it's maybe got a good site and it would benefit me, it, it could still be a, a viable option for you. And uh, Ian... I know that on the face of it, you think renewables and you think green, clean energy, um, but there are a lot of uh, of materials that will go into um, putting up things like turbines and 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 uh, water generators that that aren't necessarily, um, I, I suppose, clean um, in a sense. Um, I, I'm thinking that there'll be a lot of concrete going into to establishing. Um, turbines, for example. And then there's the issue of, of decommissioning um, these projects after the, the lifetime of, the, uh, of their use. Is that a concern for, for people thinking about putting in renewables? And, and how important should we, should we be taking it? Yeah, the, the concrete thing, I mean, concrete has a very high um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the hope is that the lifetime of your scheme, I mean, renewables, you know, they're there for over 25 years generally. Um, so on the lifetime of your renewable scheme, you will offset any of these kind of embedded emissions and more um, over the time that it's generating. So actually you are helping to reduce emissions in the long run. Um, mm -hmm. But the decommissioning process, yeah, it is is something to consider because there will be legal requirements. Um associated with that and you have to think about the whole lifetime of your project so think about what's going to happen in 25 years time um, especially if you're agreeing contracts with a developer to use your land for example um, make sure you're aware of who's responsible 
um, what is the lifetime of the project, what are your requirements, what's going to happen with um, the de decommissioning stage. Is, is it going to be left where it is in the ground? Because that actually might sometimes be the, the best option instead of trying to dig it back up. Um, you have to think about all these kind of factors. Um, generally speaking, what, what I you tend to see happen is um, instead of it totally getting taken away, you'll get a, um, a refurbishing and a replacement of kind of broken parts or damaged parts or older technology to newer equipment. And that might actually mean bigger equipment and may actually increase the capacity of the site in the long run. So it tends to be um, instead of totally decommissioning and getting rid of these schemes, what you'll see is a slightly revised design um, and um, new technology or um, new bits or new equipment installed on site instead. Um, and that extends the lifetime of the of the wind farm or hydro scheme or whatever it is, like beyond your initial 20 or 25 years. But again, there's various planning requirements with that. And it's all something you need to consider. So don't just think about over the next five or 10 years, think about the long-term kind of plans for it, um, looking you know 20 plus years into the future. Again, also, it, it, it's something to consider what your long-term plans are for your business and your farm, um, because you could be tied into these schemes and there could be certain restrictions on how you use your land or what you use your land. Um, it's also sometimes classes, depending on what you're putting in, it can be classed as a change of use from agriculture to energy production. So there's potentially some tax implications there and inheritance issues, which you also need to think about. So just be really thorough whenever you're thinking about a scheme and make sure it's going to work for you in the long run. That that was you, you touched on what was going to be one of my next questions there, Ian. The the kind of twenty to twenty five year lifespan of the say a turbine is that an arbitrary number, or over time will the the equipment become less effective? Will it, uh, will it generate less energy? And um, why why is that kind of twenty twenty five year um, time span put on these these uh, turbines so throughout the lifetime of of the scheme that there will be maintenance that's needed done and um the technology for these things develops quite quickly um so although you've put in you know like a few years ago the size of the turbines were much smaller their output was much smaller now you're getting much larger wind turbines for example being installed on land and generating much larger output so there is a chance that as time um there is a chance that over time that um, the technology develops so once your kind of initial life lifetime of your scheme comes to an end you can put bigger turbines increase your capacity for that site um i think the the design life for a, a turbine is typically around 20 years but you can obviously replace parts and and do maintenance to it and it depends very much on the site and kind of how windy it is and various things like that um you can you can make it last for 25 years so that tends to be why the the length of the schemes are, are that long um obviously stuff like hydro i mean some hydro schemes are have been around for 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 decades um and all you have to do there is kind of replace the the turbines eventually replace the dam all that kind of stuff so um although the initial kind of lifespan might be seen as 20 to 25 years with kind of ongoing maintenance and repairs and refurbishing you know you can make these things last a lot longer than that um into the future 
Um, and uh, Ian, just to, um, I'm conscious that uh, I don't want to take up too much uh, too much of your time. Is there anything happening in the renewables world right now that that farmers, landowners, that uh, people listening to this should be thinking about and and more paying more attention to? I think the the main things are going to happen looking forward is that we do have these really ambitious climate change targets and we're currently not doing enough to, to meet these targets so over the next few years there's going to have to be a lot of policy incentives there's going to have to be a big drive um, by government to help us reach these ambitions so um, although current incentives what we used to think of them have, have, have disappeared there is potentially going to be a drive over the next few years to increase our capacity and to help um, get more renewables installed to help us reach all these very ambitious targets that we have. Um, there is a move, like I said, there's a move at the moment to offshore wind. You are seeing a lot of large offshore wind farms being developed, um, but they also have kind of an onshore aspect of it where, where your kind of cables and your substation of things are on shore. So there's potentially some opportunities there for farmers to lease land or um, to get involved in that side of things as well. I think the, the main thing to consider at the moment is look at your on-site demand and what the potential renewable technologies might help you to meet that on-site demand and also help to reduce your, your carbon footprint at the same time. So don't think of it entirely as I'm going to make money out of feed-in tariffs because they don't exist anymore. Think think of it more as what is my demand on site? Is there a better way I can come up with for helping to meet this demand and also helping to improve my environmental footprint at the same time? I think that's the main way you should think about it at the moment. For listeners who may be based in Scotland's highlands and islands um, and, and the more remote communities, what are, what are the chances of um, getting that that connection to the grid or establishing a, a viable um, a viable renewable setup in an area where they might have the, the kind of natural capital required to make it viable, but just the distance and the links aren't quite there. Yeah, so um, the grid is, is one of the main things to consider because it can be, it can completely kill a project and it can also be very expensive sometimes to get a suitable grid connection. Um, there is different advances in technology and different ways that the grid operators are, are now looking to getting people connected. So they are constantly reassessing things and coming up with new solutions. But um, there is a difference between exploring to the grid or using it yourself on farm. Um, even if you're using it on farm, your demand is not likely to be constant. So you'll still need a grid connection to export some of it when you're not needing it um, and also you know renewable technologies they rely on the weather so by their very definition they're intermittent on when they're generating and when you're going to get your um, peak periods of, of generation so you will need to get a grid connection to export it when you're not needing it on site or come up with a different solution and um, people do talk about batteries um, for example or Hydrolysis for generating hydrogen is another kind of interesting area that people are looking at at the moment. Um, but the technology and stuff is still kind of developing. I wouldn't say there's an off-the-shelf scheme readily available for people um, right now. But in terms of the rural areas, we've gone from 
an energy system where power stations were located right next to your big centers of population, your big conurbations, to now a lot of the best places for renewable are quite remote areas. So um, the whole grid network is having to adapt and change over the last few years to cope with this difference in generation. Um, and it has meant that some parts of the country have, have actually been impossible to get a grid connection. The, the network is just overloaded or the actual capacity of the network just isn't there. So there's been a big investment by um, your network operators to try and increase this capacity and to put in new infrastructure and new solutions to free up space. Um, but yeah, it's grid in particular, um, especially in rural especially in rural areas, is a, is a problem. Um, so make sure you speak to your local network operator um, or get advice before um, you try and develop any scheme just to make sure that there is going to be capacity and you are able to get a grid connection. And uh, what one of my other questions for you, Ian, was you mentioned measuring your demand and assessing the requirement for renewables on the farm based on, on your demand. I would put it to you that there are beef and sheep units out there that use a lot of electricity, but I would suggest that it's maybe not typical and, and certainly not in comparison to something like um, your high output dairy farms on, on typically lower and, and much more improved ground. Is that a, a fair assessment and, and are there ways to, to get around that? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. If if your main electricity use is it's just lighting, for example, in a shed, you're not going to have a, a massive demand there. Um, obviously, people with big cold stores or, or things like that, they, they have a, a higher demand. Um, so it is worth looking at what you're you know look at your electricity bills, see see what you're actually needing, um, what your demand is. Look at times a year if when your demand kind of peaks, and if you can see anything that and if you can see any renewable technology that potentially matches up well with that. Um, in terms of upland areas, we have had a few clients in the past who have perhaps quite remote or very rural outbuildings and they don't have any grid connection anywhere near them. Renewables perhaps is an option there for them if they want to get a power supply onto that building. Um, they could perhaps look into developing a renewable scheme to give them some capacity in these rural areas. So, um, yeah, you're right. Generally speaking, demand isn't always there. And in which cases at the moment, renewables perhaps aren't your best option currently. Um, but it's worth looking at your, your whole site, look at your, the various demands you have, various options open to you, and just see if there's any potential solutions there for you. And uh, you mentioned uh, batteries um, a, a little while back, Ian. Where are we in in storage capacity uh, for renewably generated electricity? So there there are a few big projects um, on the go. Scottish Power, for example, at their Whiteley Wind Farm, are putting in a massive um, battery scheme there. Um, there's also things like um, we haven't really touched on transport yet, but there's a big demand to decarbonize the transport sector and yeah. um, get rid of your petrol and diesel engines. And a lot of people are looking at batteries and electric cars as, as a solution. And that is also part of, could be part of your storage um, network. So 
there's this plan in Scotland to phase out petrol and diesel cars by 2032. So um, you are seeing a lot more battery technology, a lot more electric vehicles and things get developed. Um, it is still not as commonplace as it will be in a few years' time. The battery technology is, is still developing. It's still advancing at a, a rate that hopefully in a few years' time it will become a lot more affordable. Um, there, there is also hydrogen generation, which has been looked at um, either to power vehicles or to help to feed hydrogen into the grid and the gas network as well. And one of the main ways in the future they're looking to do that is through renewable electricity and hydrolysis to help create that hydrogen. So there's potentially an avenue there as well, um, which people can look at. And could you, as the more interest in that sector develops, and as the hydrogen sector generally develops, um, could you potentially be using the renewables you have on your farm to help create hydrogen? So, um, yeah, there's a few things to consider and a few things to keep an eye on um, in the future. I did see that um, the, the Farming for a Better mm. Climate initiative were working with a, a group of farmers in the northeast um, on uh, incorporating hydrogen technology uh, into their tractors. Were you involved in any of that, Ian, or, or is that something that you could discuss? Um, the, the environment team have been involved in, in some things with hydrogen up in the northeast before, um, especially up in Aberdeenshire. I mean, they're doing a lot of work on hydrogen. Um, a lot of good things are, are coming out of Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. Um, also up in, in Orkney seem to be doing a lot of work as well on, on hydrogen and hydrogen technologies at the moment. Um, and it's a mix of stuff. It's, it's working with farmers. It's it's looking at um, hydrogen ferries. It's looking at public um, public sector vehicles and buses. Um, if you if you go around cities at the moment, you might see a hydrogen bus now and again. And um, they have a kind of a big storage tank on the top of them. So yeah, there's a lot of interest in it. Um, it is quite a, a new area as well, and it is developing. But there is a, a lot of interest in it and a lot of promise that. Um, this could be a solution moving forward um, for certain aspects of our society. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. For, forgive my uh, my ignorance, Ian. Hydrogen, when when burned in a combustion engine, produces water vapor, doesn't it? Yeah. So hydrogen, when you burn it, you add, you add oxygen, so you produce H2O. Um, so yeah, it's seen as a very green alternative. Um, a lot of the issues with hydrogen at the moment is how um, how efficiently you can produce it. Um, for example, you are better, for example, just using that electricity you generate as electricity at the moment as opposed to using it to create hydrogen. It's not that efficient. A lot of the hydrogen we produce at the moment um, actually comes from, from natural gas. Um, but they're looking at um, the kind of green hydrogen in the future as, as a solution to a lot of our energy needs and trying to fill this kind of techno technological gap we currently have with it. There's other issues as well. You know, it's, it's quite a difficult um, gas to, to store, for example. So they're looking at various options for, for storage and transport and, and how to get it. Um, from where it's generated to where it's actually need to be. Yeah, so I think is we are a, a few years off before it becomes like a, a commercially viable industry. But um, yeah, it's something to keep an eye on. And We're not quite at um, hydrogen-powered quad bikes just yet. Not, not fully, not on a large commercial scale, I wouldn't say so. Mm -hmm. 
we um, we touched on incentives to encourage farmers to, to undertake some kind of renewable electricity production on their farms, whether that's turbines or or hydro schemes um, or, or even solar. Uh, we, we just talked about, about hydrogen there. What kind of costs are um, included um, if you wanted to go down that line? What, what kind of costs are farmers looking at to, to, um, to, to put up a, a renewables um, enterprise on the farm? Yeah, so the, the costs will be very site specific and depending on what it is you're looking to do but mm -hmm. in terms of general cost you have to think about your cost of actually purchasing purchasing the equipment itself and um, how much is that going to cost you you have to think about all your planning requirements your design requirements your engineering work um, and also like the ongoing maintenance and operation costs as well do you need to you know is there staff involved is there staff time involved in keeping these things running um what do you do if something breaks, getting spare parts, all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's not just the initial cost of purchasing the equipment. There's all the various other costs that go with it, especially like your grid connection, for example. Um, so, yeah, there's not, a, there's not a specific answer about how much a certain technology or device will cost because it's very site-specific. But, again, this is something you need to think about. And it's something that, you know, especially with the removal of your incentive payments, they're not as attractive as they used to be in terms of a purely economic financial solution. Um, you have to really carefully look at what it's going to cost you, what your potential offset of your demand will be or your economic benefits might be for your farm, if there will be any, and actually look at that and see, is it worth me doing it from an economic point of view? Um, whether you want to do it purely for an environmental or carbon point of view that's maybe a separate separate issue but economically they are definitely not as attractive as they used to be um, so these are all really important things you have to consider about your your costs and um, potential risk to your business as well so ian um thanks very much for for, for joining us it's it's been really good um, i've certainly learned an awful lot and uh, i hope the listeners have too yeah thanks for having me thank you for listening if you have any questions about what you've heard today, you can call the Farm Advisory Service Advice Line at 0300 323 0161 or email advice at faz.scot.